You're now listening to episode 31 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hole and Thomas Costelli here today with self-directed retirement account expert and principal of Safeguard Advisors, Brian Eastman, to discuss various aspects of self-directed IRAs and solo 401ks, including checkbook control, the unrelated business income tax, also known as UBIT, and more. Are you ready to take your real estate investing business to the next level? Whether you're a seasoned vet or just getting started, the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit on January 17th to 19th has something for everyone. With a stellar lineup of expert speakers with proven track records for success, learn from the best and apply everything directly to your multifamily business. Speakers include Dan Hanford, Joe Fairless, Kathy Fetke, Matt Faircloth, Ben Labovich, Michael Blanc, our very own tax strategist, Thomas Costelli, and many more. That's right, guys. I'll be there on January 18th at 2 p.m. speaking on tax issues for multifamily investors. Don't miss this incredible event designed specifically for today's brightest and boldest multifamily investors. Visit www.apartmentevent.com and use promo code THOMAS to receive $100 off the full access pass. Again, that's www.apartmentevent.com and use the promo code THOMAS for $100 off the full access pass. We'll see you there, but for now, let's jump right into today's episode. So Brian, thanks for joining us today. Could you just give us a quick background um, on your story and how you kind of got started in the IRA uh, space? Sure. Yeah, my name is Brian Eastman. I'm a principal at uh, Safeguard Advisors. We, we specialize in a very unique platform, uh, self-directed IRAs and 401ks that offer checkbook control, uh, something I've been doing for, oh gosh, about 10 years now. Um, just kind of, you know, fell into it. I was a software tech guy that was sort of imploding with a couple of mergers and I could see on the horizon, I'd get to be about 40 years old and be obsolete and was out making a living uh, as a real estate developer and, and then stumbled into the, the previous owner of this business and liked what he was doing so much. I saw the, the convergence of technology and an education-based business and, and real estate and all those things that really uh, motivate what I'm doing and, and segued with where we're at and been happy to uh, step in and introduce clients over the years to the power of uh, self-directed retirement plans and the ability to uh, invest in in non-traditional assets like real estate and the tax-sheltered uh, retirement umbrella. It's, it's great stuff. Awesome. Uh, would you be able to just give us a quick rundown on what a self-directed IRA is? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two types of self-directed IRA programs out there. There's, there's IRA-based and 401k-based with some slight differentiators on the back end at the retirement plan. And the key thing to understand with these self-directed plans is, is that there's still a retirement plan. All the retirement aspects of contributions and timelines and reporting and, and whatnot are no different than a mainstream you know, Wall Street managed plan. But what's different is the business model, how the plan can be invested, opening up the possibility beyond the stock market into things like real estate and private mortgages and syndicated investments and things of that nature. It's really just about plan configuration and more choices. 
Awesome. So with self-directed IRAs and 401ks, a lot of people often talk about checkbook control. And from our understanding, there is out there something uh, called self-dealing when it comes to self-directed IRAs. And could you just give us a quick idea of what checkbook control is and some of the issues around self-dealing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, two two different concepts, but let's talk about checkbook control first. And basically, it's, it's a, a specialized niche within a specialized niche. You have self-directed, mostly IRA-based programs where there's an institutional custodian that acts as a processing layer. Uh, all IRAs have to have what's called a custodian. Uh, you know, think E-Trade, Vanguard, Schwab. Those are custodians that hold IRAs and facilitate uh, investments in the stock market. Well, there's some specialty custodians. They generally have the word trust in their name. Uh, they do the same thing, but just have the staff training and paperwork to document the more individualized things that happen in what are called non-traditional assets like real estate. But with that non-checkbook model, the custodial model, you've got an institution that's holding the funds and signing every document and cutting every check and receiving every deposit. And while that works okay in certain very static situations, maybe buying a small crowdfund or something like that, when you start really getting into a, a diversified portfolio or things that are time-sensitive like rental properties, it just doesn't work. You know, there's just too many intersections of paperwork and processing delays and per transaction fees that make it very cumbersome and very inefficient. In an IRA, we create checkbook control by pushing such an IRA to the back end and having it make a single investment into a specially created a limited liability company, an LLC, that we form here at Safeguard. And it's kind of like we're creating a private hedge fund for our client. Uh, the IRA will own the LLC. The client can be the non-owner manager of the LLC. And that gives them the necessary administrative authority to use that LLC as their transaction layer. So they can sign the contracts. They can fund the expenses. They can receive the income all through the vehicle of that LLC. They'll have a bank account, a checking account that they set up at the bank of their choosing, and that LLC becomes their transacting layer. That's what we call checkbook control. Same thing can be accomplished under a, an individual 401k, a little different mechanics. In a 401k, the plan itself is a trust, the self-employed business owner. We can talk a little bit about qualification later, but just simple to get to your point of checkbook control. Uh, the client is the trustee of the 401k trust. They have a trust account that they have signing authority for. So it's a more direct route to that same end result, which is a legal entity under the umbrella of the plan where the client has signing authority. And that becomes a fantastic and very efficient way to invest in non-traditional assets like real estate. Just to clarify, so if I have checkbook control over one of my retirement accounts, that means that I can literally write checks to invest in whatever I need to be investing in. Yep, yep. It's a marketing terminology, but it basically means you have full executive authority. You can negotiate, you can sign contracts, you can release funds for payment of expenses, receive the income produced. You do it all directly without having to go through a third-party intermediary. So talk to me about how, how do we get money inside of a solo 401k or a self-directed IRA, and what are some of the deadlines surrounding that? Sure. Yeah. I want to, we'll come back and talk about rules of self-dealing a little bit later, but sticking with some of these mechanics, in either case, it's about a three to four week process from end to end to set up one of these programs. You got to keep that in mind. I always get folks calling up and saying, hey, I got a real estate deal. I got to close next week. What, what can you do for me? And I'm like, well, I can you know, raise the white flag and surrender now, or we can look at a different deal. You know, uh, But it's about a three, four week process. You're going through a regulatory format, just as if you were moving money between more mainstream institutions. You know, in the IRA, the flow is from 
the old retirement plan that you have today first into the IRA account with the custodian, and then that custodian will document the IRA's investment into the LLC and send it out to the LLC bank account where you can now start putting it to work. In the 401k, we eliminate the need for that custodial layer. So we get you know plan documents to a client. They go open uh, a plan trust account, and then they can directly into their plan request a rollover from another plan. And you know there's details about what's qualified and what kind of money can move where, and keeping you know things compatible. But as long as we're effectively dealing with retirement funds belonging to a single individual of a single tax type, you know tax deferred or Roth. A lot of different things can be done and consolidated, and you know this is these types of tools are a tool. They don't necessarily need to be your one and only tool. I have clients who have you know half their portfolio in a self-directed vehicle and half their portfolio in a Wall Street vehicle. Uh, but you just you know can you move the amount of money you want to use to invest in in this fashion into either one of these vehicles, and we walk people through that process. Perfect. And, you know, something that one of our clients had recently asked us is whether or not when you actually go and set up a self-directed IRA is, do they need to set up a TIN, a uh, tax identification number for that IRA trust? Uh, well, for the, the IRA, typically not. But in the IRA, in the checkbook IRA, where we're forming that LLC, we do obtain a tax ID for that LLC. In fact, we do so in a special manner uh, we kind of have to put a little bit of a round peg in a square hole. The, the IRS has actually directed us on how to do it, but we get it so that the IRS understands that it's the IRA, not the taxpayer, that's the uh, the sole member and tax responsible party for that LLC. So yeah, that's a that's a critical piece, and it needs to be done the right way. So if I come to you in like July, and I want to make a contribution to my IRA or solo four hundred one k for the prior year, because I want to reduce my prior year taxable income, what are my options? It's going to depend a little bit on your situation. Uh, You know, normally your contribution deadlines are going to be April 15th. In an individual plan, like a traditional IRA or a regular Roth IRA, you get beyond April 15th and you're out of luck. You just, you know, you can start you know, if you're talking July 2018, you're looking at the 2017 tax year, you're, you're done. You can contribute for 2018, but not for, for 2017. In the employer-based formats, like a, a SEP on the IRA side or the solo 401k, you can actually make contributions up until your tax filing date, including extensions, which will take you to either mid-September or mid-October, depending on your, your business format. But in the 401k, you're only eligible to make those contributions if the plan itself was in place by December 31st of the tax year. So if you came to me in July and said, hey, I want to make new contributions, uh, I'm self-employed, I'd say, well, we can't look at a 401k because you didn't have it in place back in December. However, there's a neat little bridge that we very frequently use in that situation, which is for that one tax year in question, we'll have the client set up a SEP IRA. Uh, they can make the generous profit sharing contribution potentially as high as 55,000 for those under age 50 and, and 61 for those 50 and over, depending on their income. So a nice generous contribution for that previous tax year for in this example, 2017. Once that's done, yeah, there's going to be more horsepower, more benefit in the 401k program over the long haul. We'll switch them over to the 401k. They can start using the 401k with their 2018 contributions. And even if we're setting it up in July, they can maybe look back to, you know, January income. Uh, They'll have the full full 2018 uh, perspective in most cases. Uh, And then they can roll in that 2017 SEP uh, and just, you know, 
liquidate and close out the SEP at that point, but it becomes a nice bridge. So there, there's things that can be done to get that real advantage of the 401k, which is those high contributions. Yeah. So, so talk to me about that. You just mentioned that the 401k has much more horsepower than, than the SEP IRA. What does that mean? Well, the top line number is the same. And again, for those age 50 and under, as of 2018, it's $55,000 that can be contributed. Uh, If you're over age 50, you get a $6,000 catch up and that would take you to $61,000. And that's per participant. So I have a lot of clients who are husband and wife in a business. The business is doing very well. They could both contribute up to that maximum. So the maximum is the same. The difference is with the SEP, you only have one method through which to make contributions. And in the 401k, you have two. So you can get more money into the plan on less overall income. Uh, and then separately, we'll, we'll pause after this and, and go to the, there's also some Roth features that give it some additional horsepower as well. But real quick reviewing those with the SEP and the 401k, there's an employer profit sharing contribution that can be made. And in a, uh, a pass-through environment, like a sole proprietorship or a single-member LLC, it's uh, 20% of the net business income up to that maximum of $55,000. In a corporation uh, where you're paying yourself a W-2, it's up to 25% of your W-2 compensation. You don't get to look at your, your dividend compensation, but your W-2. So you can use that to work towards the plan maximum. And if you're highly compensated, maybe you max out with that profit sharing, which would be to your advantage because those profit sharing contributions do come ahead of 50% of the self-employment taxes. So it'll save you a few, few thousand dollars on, on self-employment taxes relative to the other piece. So that's all you get in, in the SEP IRA. And I forget right off the top of my head, but it's about $185,000 of income that'll get you to that maximum on profit sharing. With the 401k, you get an additional form of contribution, and that's as the employee, as the participant saver in your own company, uh, you can separately make a uh, employee contribution. And again, for those under age 50, it's 18500 in 2018. For those age 50 and older, it's a, that 6000 catch-up rate takes you to 24. And that's just the first, say, 18500 of after-payroll tax income that you have. So if you make gross in your business, well, you know, net after expenses, uh, allowing for uh, your self-employment taxes, you can max out the plan. So for somebody who's in that, you know, $75,000 to $150,000 worth of compensation range, by stacking those two together, they're going to get a lot more money into the plan than just with the profit sharing that the SEP offers. Would you be able to touch on some of the Roth features that you just that you just touched on before? Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and when we mentioned the employee contribution, the eighteen thousand five or the twenty four five, if you're over age fifty, that you can elect to make on a tax deferred or on a Roth basis, uh, or actually you can even do it a little bit of both. You know, up to that maximum. So that's without income limitations. A lot of people look at the Roth IRA. Uh, and if they're in a more standard environment, they're income limited out of being able to make contributions. Well, you don't see that in the solo 401k. You can make that full 18,005 of Roth IRA contributions directly. And, you know, you don't get the tax deduction, but you're starting to, you know, you're paying tax on the seed and you can grow that tax free. The longer you have, the the more that's going to pay you off. So it can be a real powerful way to pursue that Roth strategy. You can also within the plan do Roth conversions. So if you set up a plan and you roll over funds from a previous tax-deferred source, 
unfortunately, you can't roll in a Roth IRA. If you had an old Roth 401k with your employer, you could roll that. But you bring tax deferred money into the 401k when you set it up, or over a period of time, you make some tax deferred contributions. You can at any point in time make the election as the employee to convert some of that tax deferred portion of your plan over to the Roth status. Uh, just like most of the, the Roth conversion style events, you'll uh, you know pay taxes on the amount you convert and you want to you know chat with the guys on your team to run the numbers, see what makes sense, try not to push yourself up a tax bracket if you can, things like that. But you can convert that amount over to the Roth side. So a couple of real powerful ways to build your Roth portfolio within the plan. And you could hold both. You can have a, a tax deferred bucket and a Roth bucket. You can invest them separately. You can combine them as long as you're good at bookkeeping and can track the values appropriately. It's a, it's a real flexible uh, way to go. Yeah, we love little Roths whenever possible. Roths usually make a lot of sense for a lot of people out there. But one of the issues a lot of people have misconceptions around is UBIT. Uh, would you be able to give a quick overview on what UBIT is? Yeah, that's a big can of worms. <laughs> so uh, I like to start at the top. So in these IRA and 401k plans, not everything you do is 100% tax exempt. The large majority of things and many things that investors are going to do are. And of course, we're all used to everything being tax exempted when we're in conventional financial products. But when you start getting out and doing different types of things, there are some activities that can create some tax exposure for one of these plans. There's three acronyms. So let's start with there's UBIT stands for Unrelated Business Income Tax. That's the tax itself that gets paid, like saying income tax. Well, there's a couple of ways you can create the uh, liability to have that income tax. But the UBIT is generally thrown around as what you'll see everywhere when people talk and on the internet. And it's really just the tax itself. There's two types of income that create UBIT exposure. One is Unrelated Business Income, or UBI, and that's generated when a tax-exempt entity, like a retirement plan or a nonprofit or you know any other tax-exempt, is engaging in a trade or business on a regular or repeated basis. And the idea is, is if that's taking place, a trade or business on a regular basis, we have this tax-exempt substantively competing with tax-paying businesses. And Congress figured out long before IRAs and 401ks existed that that really didn't serve the public good. And, and this tax was invented back in the 1950s to level that playing field and protect those tax-paying businesses. Uh, in the real estate space, where we see that is uh, active real estate, things like uh, building new spec homes for immediate sale, uh, flipping of properties, you know, just buy, fix, resell, uh, there's no passive component to those transactions, uh, and, and that's viewed as a trader business. And again, if it's done on what's deemed by the IRS to be a regular or repeated basis, which I'd love to give you a volume level, but there just isn't one, probably much more than about two transactions a year would be a good guess, depending on, on, on other factors. But you know, if you're doing you know, buy, fix, sell, repeat, you're running a business, and there's this tax exposure. And the tax on, on unrelated business taxable income is pretty steep. You know, it's a tiered rates, but at $12,400 of net income, it gets up into the 37% tax bracket federal. Many states will have a, a parallel to that. So you could very easily be paying 45, 50% tax on the gains inside your IRA or 401k. And that just isn't appealing to most people. That's typically going to be a, a deal killer and something that you want to strategize around. Mm. Uh, so that's the first tax, unrelated business income tax. And that applies a real key consideration. A lot of people will throw out the language, oh, 401ks are exempted from UBIT. No, they're not. 
I'll talk about what they are exempted from in a moment. But but either a 401k or an IRA is going to have that tax exposure if it's engaging in a trade or a business. The other tax, and what we see more commonly, and which really isn't a deal killer, it's very manageable, is debt financed income, unrelated debt financed income, or UDFI. And that's generated when a tax exempt uses debt financing to make an investment. There's an exemption for the 401k there when the debt financing has to do with the acquisition of real property. If a 401k was using debt in the stock market, like margin trading, it would still have the tax exposure. But in in real estate, financed real estate, uh, the 401k is exempt. And that's a key factor for people who qualify for the 401k. It really simplifies their lives. In an IRA, what that tax means is that the percentage of the income that's derived from the borrowed money, the non-IRA money on the mortgage, is viewed as taxable. So if you, a little simple example to get your, your mind around how this works. So say you're going to go buy a $100,000 property, uh, and instead of paying all cash with your IRA, you were going to put 40 down. Uh, you'd have to go get a non-recourse loan, no personal guarantee from you. You borrow that 60000 from the bank. Well, that, that property is now 60% debt financed. So 60% of the income, the gross income produced by that property is viewed as taxable. That's the unrelated business in, uh, taxable income. Uh, I'm sorry, unrelated debt financed income. Sorry for mixing my, my acronyms there. And, and so 60% is looked at as taxable. Uh, you then get to apply 60%, that same ratio of all your normal deductible expenses that you'd be used to in the after-tax world, like depreciation, interest on the note, property taxes, insurance, et cetera. And that's going to dramatically reduce the gross income to a net taxable number. Uh, there's also a $1,000 exemption off the top, which for most investors working with less than half a million dollars makes a difference. So uh, those are the uh, the deductions. And that's going to take your net taxable number to a much lower number. Uh, that net taxable numbers then also run through the trust tax table. But generally, with most real estate investments, you're going to find yourself in the 10 15% net range because of all the deductions. Uh, and the tax impact uh, is pretty negligible. I mean, you take that Example, I gave you $100,000 property, 60% debt financed. Say it was you know, producing 10% returns and running about a 30% expense ratio to gross rents. You'd be looking at you know, 175, 200 bucks in net taxable income at the end of the year. It's just not a big hit. And you're going to get the benefits of leverage and a higher cash on cash return. So even an IRA where you're not exempted from that tax, it can be a very positive way to use leverage but yeah, if you can eliminate the headache and the, the small cost of the tax in a 401k, it's even nicer. Awesome. Excellent breakdown. We really appreciate that, Brian. Uh, so you mentioned that, that 401ks avoid UDFI as long as we're investing in real estate. So that's a way that, that real estate investors can avoid being hit with UDFI. Uh, just don't invest in real estate with your IRA, or at least don't invest in equity positions in real estate with an IRA. But Brian, talk to me about how we can avoid UBIT because you mentioned that the UBIT taxes can get upwards of 30, 40%. Uh, what are some things that real estate investors can do to avoid UBIT or to at least minimize the exposure to UBIT? There's, there's a couple strategies. Um, the number one is just reconfiguring the transaction so that it's not, it's a passive investment and not an active trade or business. So, you know, you, flipping a house. Yeah. Can yep, you explain, explain how that works? Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, again, the, the key is, is just, you know, shifting the focus of the transaction. If, if you were to take your IRA, uh, your checkbook IRA, for example, and have the IRA be the flipper. Well, it's a little challenging to do for one because you got to do everything at arm's length. You can't go out and swing hammers and be the delivery boy and stuff. You can, you know, you can project manage to a degree, but you're you're basically funding and coordinating the project via the IRA. 
the IRA is hiring all the vendors to do that work. So it's a, you know, a lot of work and effort and, and, and whatnot. The IRA is going to generate a gross return. And if you're doing that frequently, you're going to see the taxation of UBIT apply and, and erode those returns. So that's typically not a positive approach. Generally, the better approach is to find a partner, a contractor, or, or somebody who's, who's good at you know, running around and, and project managing and whatnot and say, here, you go buy this house and you flip this house, my IRA is going to be your bank. I'm going to lend you money. And you do a hard money loan. Uh, and you might say, you know, two, three points up front, you know, 12, 15% interest, uh, something along those lines. You know, usually those are short-term projects. You might want to bank in a, you know, a minimum number of months interest that you get. And that changes the nature of the transaction. When the IRA has an equity stake in the profits of that business transaction, it has the tax exposure that goes along with that. When you shift the IRA to being the lender and just receiving fixed income, irrespective of how the, the deal performs, now that's passive interest income and that's not subject to taxation. And, and is the same thing said for the 401ks in that example? Yep, yep. Same, same exact thing, IRA, 401k. There's no difference in this particular area. Now, another strategy that some folks will look at when they see those flip opportunities is what we call a hybrid flip. And you know, the idea there is when you're flipping properties, you're basically able to buy that property at a discount and add value, and that boosts the equity in your transaction, that added value. Well, if you buy it at a discount, add that value, turn around and immediately capture that value through the sale of the property, again, that's an active dealer-style transaction. That's something that's going to be viewed as a trader business and have the UBIT exposure. If you can be patient, which frankly is what retirement plans are all about, you're building future long-term wealth and change the nature of that transaction to make it passive, well, you can eliminate that tax bite. So instead of buy, fix, sell, buy, fix, stick a tenant in that property and rent that property for a period of at least 12 months. Now it's not viewed as a flip. Now that's a passive rental asset. And in the future, whether it's 13 months or three years or five years down the road, when you sell, not a flip transaction. It's still all passive income. You're just disposing of that passively held rental property. So you eliminate the UBIT, but you still get to capture that added value. You might get some positive cash flow on the rental period, and it can really, really dramatically increase your return instead of the, the rushed quick flip. So a flip property is definitely subject to UBIT, but a rental property is not subject to UBIT? Correct. Yeah, UBIT is anything that's deemed to be passive income, and I'll explain that in just a second, is exempted. And the passive forms of income are interest, dividends, royalties, rent from real property, or the future sale of an asset that's been held to produce passive income over time. This is all for, for those of who, who have problems sleeping at night. IRS publication 598 is a great read on this topic. <laughs> we'll definitely put you to sleep there, right? Uh, so oh, yeah. talking about the passive income, that's a good segue to our next question, which involves syndication. So we have a lot of clients that will use their retirement accounts to invest in syndicates that are investing in real estate. So you might have a group that goes and buys an apartment building. And they raise, you know, a million dollars. And some of that million dollars is coming in the form of solo 401k and self-directed IRA investments. So are those owners subject to UBIT or do those passive rules, those passive exemptions, do they still apply? Well, it depends on what the, the, the syndicate's doing. So if, if the purpose of the syndicate is to go buy an apartment complex... Well, that's going to, in most cases, generate passive rental income. And that's even the case. You know, a lot of these deals, I see a lot of this myself, 
you know, you get a bunch of investors together, they buy an underperforming or maybe a, you know, a, you know, 1970s apartment complex. They, over a period of time, renovated, improved the management, improved the performance of that. And then, yeah, three, five years down the road, there's an exit strategy to sell. Well, the focus of that is that passive rental income. It's still, it's more like that hybrid flip I described. There's enough of that passive rental component that that's a passive transaction and the income isn't deemed as subject to UBIT. If the syndicate was flipping or, or, or building a new subdivision, well, now we have a trader business and in a pass through like an LLC or an LLP, the tax exposure is still going to flow through if one of the members of that partnership is an IRA or a 401k. So again, it depends on the, the underlying activity will determine you know, whether that occurs. But generally speaking, though those syndicates are generally pass-through entities, so the activity of the entity is, is viewed as the activity of the fractional member as an IRA or 401k. So I guess just to recap right there, basically it's the IRA investors taking the form of whatever the company, whatever the LLC itself is, or whatever the pass-through entity itself is doing. So if they're flipping properties, uh, that income would be considered a flip um, and would be active and would be subject to this UBIT tax. Correct. And that's true if, if the entity used was a, is a pass-through. In some cases, you know, a group of people wanted to go do real estate development or, or redevelopment in the form of flips might form a C corporation. Instead, then the corporation itself would be paying taxes and an IRA would be a shareholder receiving passive dividend income. There'd be no uh, taxation. And that would actually lower the tax rate. You'd pay corporate tax rates at 21% as opposed to trust tax rates at uh, 37%. So if you had a couple IRA investors wanting to get together and flip, they'd be better off forming a, a syndicate through a C-Corp. Well, there you have it for our audience. If you want to avoid the UBIT on your flipping transactions, you could do a C-Corp, um, which will get you to that lower 21% rate. Brian, thank you for explaining that. We definitely appreciate it. Do you happen to be investing in real estate yourself at this point in time? I do. Uh, I'm not as active as I as I have been in the, in the past. I've actually been focusing more of my plan activities on passive lending, which is just less time intensive. It gives me time to run my business and make it to my son's hockey games and and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely uh, you know I'm a real estate investor doing some some private lending, doing some rental properties, both in and out of the retirement plan. And when you're doing this investing, how do you end up handling your accounting and your bookkeeping to you do yourself? Uh, on my personal side, I have a CPA that I work with. Uh, on the plan side, it's all pretty, you know, simple interest income inside the tax sheltered umbrella of the plan. If I was if I was dealing with UDFI or UBIT, I'd be having a professional handle that for me. But I'm not, so you just keeping the the simple records I need for the 401k is is easy enough to do in Excel. I don't even I don't even go as far as QuickBooks for that. So yeah, pretty straightforward. Great. And what would you say if you had to say one piece of tax advice you ever received, what would be the best best advice you ever got? Get a professional, put you on the right path. It is something I encounter all the time. I get people trying to be the autodidact and self-educate themselves on the web and wade through stuff. And more than almost anything else in our society, the tax code is cross-referential, contradictory, and manipulated at many, many levels. And and having a seasoned guide who can help you to navigate that and take all that massive information and boil it down to here's what applies to your strategy and what you're doing is invaluable. I've I've learned that lesson myself. I get to teach that lesson to clients, even though so, you know what I'm doing isn't isn't the same as as the tax advice. But it, it's so true. It's so there's so much value in that. We love those answers. And if you need your seasoned guide, check out www.therealestatecpa.com. <laughs> 
Brian, what is your favorite piece of technology that you're using right now? Oh, wow, wow, wow. Um, you know, actually, it, I need to start using it more. It's a little sort of a whiz-bang, you know, gee whiz-bang thing. There's a phone app called Citrix. It's C-I-T, no, not Centric, C-E-N-T-R-I-Q. And basically, it's a property inventory guide. And you can you can scan the model badge on your refrigerator, for example, and you give them a data process and they come back and then you've got the manuals for that refrigerator. You've got the parts ordering for the filter and all that kind of stuff. You can just go grab on Amazon. And so as a homeowner or as a property investor, you have right there on your phone, all, all the stuff, you know, you get a tenant that calls you and says, Hey, I need new air filters for my furnace. You can say, great. These are the ones you need. I'll order them on, on homedepot.com and have them sent to you. And it's done. It's a, it's a three-minute phone call instead of a whole big adventure. Uh, it's pretty cool tech. I like it. Awesome. We always love to hear about new tech and, and new ways people are using it out there. Brian, if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, uh, what would be the best way for them to do that? Two ways. Uh, the website is ira123.com. Lots of ways to find us from there, learn about our, our services. The main number is 877-229-9763. Uh, we're from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Mountain Time. Myself and one of our advisors aren't available. Our receptionist can schedule time to speak. And it all starts with a conversation. As, as I mentioned a few moments ago, everything is specific to an individual and what their situation and goals are. And dissecting that and getting to the heart of a matter is, is the key of what we do. And, and always happy to spend that time and help people see you know, if there's a path that makes sense. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on today. We definitely appreciate you taking the time to explain some of this, this complicated stuff to our listeners. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, You really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.